Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Femme Pharmacy. I'm Sammy. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're here to give you access to the leading minds in women's health, bring you groundbreaking research, and share the resources and remedies we've gathered through our multi-year healing journeys. No topic is off limits as we explore the complexities of the female experience. This is a safe space, and we're so glad you're here. Happy holiday season to all of our Femme Farm friends. We appreciate you taking time to join us and support this mission in spreading knowledge and providing resources to all the women out there on their respective journeys. Most of you are probably familiar with the concept of physical therapy. Whether you've injured yourself or developed pain, physical therapy is an important step in the rehabilitation process. The same goes for your pelvic health. While pelvic physical therapy has become increasingly popular over the last few years, women have been seeking this care for long before that. The pelvis and its network of pelvic floor muscles need help, just like any other muscular system in your body. Whether you develop this pain due to structural imbalances, need support through pregnancy and post-childbirth changes, or have pain conditions due to things like pelvic floor myalgia, IC, chronic infections, vaginismus, or endometriosis, pelvic floor physical therapy plays a key role in the healing process. We are very lucky to be joined today by Stephanie Prendergast, a leader and absolute icon in this field. She started her career prior to the mainstream conversations around pelvic health and has tirelessly grown her practice, lectured around the world, and provided resources through her blog, which reaches millions of people who seek her care and expertise. In 2013, she was the first physical therapist to become president of the International Pelvic Pain Society, and she has driven access to diagnosis, care, and treatment momentously forward. I feel very grateful that Stephanie was my physical therapist during a difficult time in my own journey. Following an endometriosis surgery that unfortunately left me with more pain and dysfunction, Stephanie became not only a source of physical relief, but emotional support and guidance through navigating the challenges that I faced. 
Pelvic floor physical therapy is an intimate experience, and the bond that Stephanie and I developed is one that I cherish. Something that I believe is a cornerstone of the way that she cares for her patients is in helping them to hone in on their root causes, parse through diagnoses, recommend doctors, and troubleshoot decisions around treatment. She was like a quarterback in my treatment plan, and in physically interacting with me and carefully tracking my symptoms and progress, she was able to work with my doctors to make sure I was being cared for correctly. In this way, your physical therapist can be a crucial and irreplaceable part of your healing journey. In today's episode, we will hear about Stephanie's rise in the physical therapy world, the way pelvic floor muscles can impact pain and functioning, and how to determine if this line of treatment is right for you. Absolutely every woman should be educated on her pelvic floor, and it's important in different stages of life. I am so excited to be bringing you all this knowledge straight from the best in the field. Welcome, Stephanie. We're so excited to have you today. Thanks for inviting me. We would love to get into your personal background and sort of what landed you in pelvic pain. So I'm a pelvic floor physical therapist. I graduated with my master's degree a long time ago in 2000. I spent about a year in orthopedic physical therapy and quickly thought I had made the wrong career decision. It just really wasn't that interesting to me. I didn't feel like I was knowing, I didn't know what I was doing as a new grad, didn't have a lot of mentorship. And I happened to stumble across a urologist in San Francisco who had an ad in the newspaper that said, pelvic floor physical therapist wanted will train. And that was it. And so I applied for the job. I was given the position and given mentorship. And what was, I think, really different about my background that I didn't realize until much later is it was very unusual to be working as a physical therapist in an interdisciplinary setting with a urologist, a pain doc, a psychologist, seeing mostly only pelvic pain for the majority of my day. So a lot of other pelvic floor PTs may start treating postpartum and incontinence and some of the broader umbrellas of pelvic floor dysfunction. I very quickly specialized in pelvic pain and it was much more meaningful to me than what I was previously seeing in the orthopedic setting. Our patients were my age. They couldn't sit down. They couldn't have sex. They had severe urinary issues. Genes were difficult. And it just was an opportunity really to have a more meaningful career. And now here we are 23 years later. Do you feel like you were sort of at the forefront of this? I mean, I know you are like one of the OG pelvic floor physical therapists, especially specializing in pelvic pain. Like what was it like back then with so much less information and so fewer resources to help you help these patients? That's a great question. As I said, I answered an ad in a newspaper, (laughs) (laughs) not even a thing. So you can imagine how difficult it was to actually acquire knowledge about these disorders, both for our patients and it just the internet was not as prolific for these types of issues as it is now. For me, I really had an interesting opportunity because I also had a mentor in Chicago who I consider one of the leaders with pelvic pain treatments, and that is Rhonda Cotterinos. And so to have an expert physical therapist helping me from afar on the phone at that time plus the exposure to so many different types of pelvic pain. Yes, I think we were a little ahead of the time with the role of physical therapy being involved. 
So I was often at medical conferences and I would be one of maybe four physical therapists there in mostly medical societies. So these issues were handled or attempting to be handled by specialists in gynecology and neurology, but physical therapy really wasn't what people thought of when you hear pelvic pain at that time. Right. For the listeners that I'm sure we have a range here, we probably have those who are very unfortunately familiar with pelvic pain and those that are like, I wonder if I fall into this category. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the range of conditions that you treat and what kind of falls into the broad category of pelvic pain? Absolutely. So pelvic floor dysfunction basically is a deviation from normal in our urinary bowel sexual function or generalized We should not be aware of our clitoris, our vulva, our perineum, our anus. We should move through the day without having to think about these things. So anytime a patient starts to have a little bit of deviation from that, they can get symptoms in any of those categories that I just mentioned. An example may be something less of an emergent situation where it just feels like, hmm, I went to the gym and now I feel like I have to urinate every 15 minutes, where normally if I don't go to the gym... I probably urinate every three to four hours. It's not going to really drive you to the doctor, but people, when we question them, will start to notice little things like this in their history that can lead into a bigger issue. So in the urinary department, it's normal to urinate roughly six to eight times in a 24-hour period, and the length of your stream should roughly be 30 seconds. If it starts to be a little bit different than that, that may be a clue that your pelvic floor may not be functioning as normally as it should. We also should be able to maintain continence. And sometimes, whether it's in the teenage athlete years or after a baby or in perimenopause, people may start to leak urine, not be able to control things the way that they could. In the bowel department, childhood constipation is an indicative factor of the risk for pelvic floor dysfunction in adults. Constipation is something that if we're straining every day, it's like a mechanical compromise to your pelvic floor. And that can also be a precursor into some of the adult pelvic floor disorders. But it also may be a sign of early endometriosis in people that do not yet menstruate because they can't have the symptom of dysmenorrhea because they haven't yet started their menstrual cycles. So they're starting now to understand better that some of these things are more tied together than they've ever known before. Other chances where things may start to go wrong are the sexual pain disorders. And so that can come from pelvic floor dysfunction, but also some of the treatments that may be indicated for things like dysmenorrhea and endometriosis. Hormonal suppressive therapies in teenagers are going to have consequences on certain people's tissues. Not everybody is vulnerable to developing things like vulvodynia or vestibulodynia from birth control pills and other hormonal suppressive therapies, but some people are. And the problem I see is that people that are giving these things are not warned that they could get urinary urgency, frequency, and pain, and vulvar symptoms. So the OCP landmark is another chance where people, when they do start getting their periods, are vulnerable to having pelvic floor dysfunction and pelvic pain show up. Then we get through the next phases of life, which is Pregnancy, postpartum, and then perimenopause are also interesting phases in someone's life where pelvic pain can start to come to the surface. Outside of the major milestones in someone's life, there can also be chronic infections such as urinary tract or yeast infections that start to lead into this. All of a sudden, the infection's clear, but somebody still has their symptoms, leaving people wondering what's going on. 
Um, there's other disease processes outside of endometriosis that can also trigger some of these pelvic pain conditions that can include gastrointestinal distress, SIBO, things like Crohn's disease. So there are clearly so many different manifestations of this. When someone comes to see you at your pelvic rehab center, what does it look like? I know it's going to be different for everyone, but is it an immediate physical exam? Obviously, you're asking a ton of medical history questions. Is there like formal testing that happens? Yes. So for pelvic floor physical therapists, we do have to take a pretty extensive history Because one of three things are generally happening in our offices here in 2023, either the patient is referred by an expert who actually has properly diagnosed them and already has medical management underway, which is one subset of the patients we see. A second subset is that somebody could be referred by a general gynecologist or urologist who may have told them a range of information from something helpful to damaging. We have to figure out what that was. To be told as a patient, you have vulvodynia, there's no cure, maybe go to physical therapy, that can help you. It's going to be a very different situation than a gynecologist saying physical therapy is a known treatment for this. Please go see these people, they're going to help you. And then the third category is someone who referred themselves. So depending on which of the three categories generally people are coming in with, that is how we have to start our intake process to really understand what the patient understands so far about their symptoms, what they've been told, how distressful the process has been before they even get to us. And then we will guide the physical exam based on what we're learning during that initial intake. So for some patients, Let's say they had a car accident and now they have vulvodynia. That's going to be a very different evaluation than somebody who maybe developed vulvodynia after taking birth control pills. Mm -hmm. So one may be more mechanically driven where we have to really evaluate lumbopelvic mechanics. The second case may be more tissue driven where it might be more of a soft tissue situation and everything mechanically is fine. We can kind of see everything in between because we also see pre- and post-operative patients from various gynecologic and neurologic conditions as well. We just really need to see where the patient is in their process and then figure out how we can fit into that and then help them develop short and long-term goals to start to resolve their symptoms. And obviously, going into something like pelvic floor physical therapy, I think, can feel intimidating to a lot of people. They could be referred by, like you said, a general doctor or uh, find information online and think to themselves, I should do this, but it could be scary or they don't really know if it's normal what they're experiencing. What would you say is the way to sort of get over that fear? Because I know that it can be challenging for people to be okay with the exam and be okay with some of the internal and external work and the intimacy that happens with pelvic floor therapy. I think it's important for patients not to push themselves because it's very difficult to try to go forward with something if you're not ready. This is the same as all the other disciplines as well. And One of the things we've tried to do and are constantly working on at PHRC is trying to get appropriate evidence-based information more publicly available on our Instagram and our social media channels so people can look at that at their own pace and decide if they feel comfortable or not. It's never a good situation if a doctor is saying, you have to go see these people. Of course not. But we also understand the fear and the trepidation about people sometimes wanting to come in. 
We try to train even our administrative team to be able to answer the questions to help ease people's minds when they do call or message us in about an appointment. Most people usually feel better once they get in the door. I love that approach because I do, like Sammy said, it's it's such a sensitive, intimate experience and having the right care team and support team, which is something that Sammy and I were talking about, given her work with you, is having a pelvic floor physical therapist who's also a support system and who really gets it because I've been to a variety of specialists and I didn't really know where to go with it either. I was one of those cases, like you said, where a gynecologist was sort of like, you're kind of like effed and this is like where you are with IC and like, this might be something you should explore with no really further information. So I kind of like found someone on my own. It wasn't the right fit. I thought maybe it was making things worse. It is a tough thing to navigate. And I feel like so many women are falling into the position of self-hunting. Like there aren't a ton of resources that are directing you to it. And then to go in there and have such a, you know, potentially like vulnerable experience, it, it can feel a little invasive. Absolutely. And you are speaking such a common situation, which because I think of my medical background so early on, we want to try to be the CEO for our patients. Mm -hmm. We are going to spend more time with them than any provider is going to be able to. And we really need to help, again, understand what happened in the past and what is the path forward. And I really take ownership of that as a physical therapist because I don't think other people have enough time to do it. And it's not their fault. It's just the current healthcare system in America. That's such a good point. I always felt with our time together when you were my PT in LA that as things progressed or changed or new challenges came up, like you were the person who was helping me troubleshoot all of it. And it was invaluable having that in my life because you can only see your specialist, your doctor so many times and they don't have the ability to help you track and manage the symptoms as well. So having a pelvic floor therapist who also is engaged with the community, with the research, with the medical landscape is so also mentally and emotionally freeing for the patient because I always felt like I had someone to talk to and someone to go to. It was one of the things that got me through the hardest moments that I had. I'm glad we could help, but you're not alone in that experience. I know a lot of people feel that way. Absolutely. I want to talk about the role of infections. It's something you mentioned at the beginning and something that I've personally experienced and why I sought out pelvic floor physical therapy. And for me, it was this tough balance of having an active infection and like a very irritated situation, but also knowing that my pelvic floor was tight because of it. So Mm -hmm. I just want to discuss like, when is the right time when you're having recurrent infection and also this concept of why recurrent infections do cause this tension in the pelvic floor and what we can do about it. This is a hot topic because I think a lot of people are suffering with these infections for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And we're still learning more and more, which again is so much better than it was when I started 23 years ago. But if we take the basic mechanism for a perfectly normal person, no pelvic floor issues, but let's say all of a sudden they start getting UTIs. So you have a urinary tract infection. It's a painful situation. It may take five to seven days before the pain is manageable. That can cause pelvic floor changes and tightening because of a mechanism called the viscerosomatic reflex. That means that the bladder is stimulating the pelvic floor to contract. 
Maybe one instance of that is okay, but if this happens more than one time in a short period of time, which is technically considered recurrent if there's three a year, well, now you're constantly having bombardment to the pelvic floor muscles that maybe they do not relax after that infection clears and the muscles and nerves and tissues themselves can mimic a UTI even when the cultures come back negative. But let's add another layer to that because as we know, we have to treat urinary tract infections with antibiotics. And some people more than others are going to be vulnerable to then getting yeast infections, Mm -hmm. which are also going to cause the viscerosomatic impact on the pelvic floor, but also may make the tissues more sensitive than they should be. And that sensitivity may not resolve with the resolution of the infection. This can lead people to doing all kinds of things to try to bring back their comfort. There may be over-the-counter things that are being used, such as monostat and antifungal creams, and some people develop an allergic reaction to those and then have a mast cell problem that is completely independent of the pelvic floor or the infections. But most of the time, people may have a bunch of these things that are overlapping one another, and it's really confusing to the patients because they're not sure what they have going on, and their doctors maybe don't want to see them again if it's a generalist and just start giving them antibiotics so they have them or antifungals so they have them. And when that starts happening, people may miss their actual diagnosis because it's assumed that there is an infection. And what if there's not? Because lichen sclerosis can also mimic yeast infections. And so the differential diagnosis is very important But that's one of the things I see getting missed most commonly. And then people end up in this cycle of a loop that I can describe so well because it's so many people's story. So we have to figure out why they're getting the UTIs. Why are they getting yeast if they have it? How are we going to clear those things and treat the pelvic floor and then move on? I so relate to that because (laughs) I've been given, you know, amoxicillin, macrobid, maybe a Diflucan and a Valium suppository, like all in one visit. Mm -hmm. And you're kind of like, okay, let's just, it's the kitchen sink situation because you're in so much pain. And we know better than a lot of people that pelvic pain is like a different level and a different hypersensitivity and fixation and focus that you have on that area that to your point should never be like, you shouldn't feel those body parts. So I'm curious with these infections, like how to know when pelvic floor isn't the right move? Like, are there external therapies you can do if you're really in it? Like, obviously, tissues can get sensitive and things like that. We like to avoid any transvaginal work if there is an active infection for the obvious reasons. But so many times our patients are in a situation, you know, they think it's an infection, it's not an infection. As long as it's not an active proven infection on the vaginal culture, it's okay to attempt the physical therapy. If the tissues are too sensitive, we have to decide if this is therapeutic or provocative. And this Mm -hmm. is one area where I see some physical therapists not knowing the difference or knowing how to test for vestibulodynia that may be related to hormone deficiencies is another area in pelvic floor PT where unless they have advanced training in sexual medicine, sometimes they're putting dilators on tissues that are tearing or, you know, our patients are saying they were burning and they kept proceeding anyway. There sometimes has to be a strategy and a sequence Mm -hmm. to helping people get better and recognizing which impairments are the most important to treat first is something that I think is key and it's missing in some treatment plans because pelvic floor transvaginal work may not be appropriate if all these other factors need to be treated first. And then we have to back up and go, do they have an expert gynecologist or are they just seeing a general gynecologist? 
What can I do to make sure my patient's getting what they need? And sometimes it's not my actual treatment as the first line, but more helping them figure out what they do need to do first. Yeah, you're absolutely preaching to the choir here. Elizabeth and I talk about this all the time, how there has to be much better sequencing of treatment and much more directed therapies to what the actual problem is. I know for me, you were so helpful in allowing me to understand that pelvic floor physical therapy might not work for me until my endometriosis was resolved. When my Mm. vagina was glued to the back of my spine, practically with adhesions, you can massage out the kinks and work on my pelvic floor until the end of time. But until you separate those organs and create an environment where pelvic floor physical therapy can be helpful, we were really just like, fighting an unwinnable battle. And I made strides in pelvic floor therapy within two, three months once my, you know, frozen pelvis was taken care of versus I think I had been in PT for three years with absolutely no, uh, with, you know, sometimes it would help the symptoms and it would get me out of flares. And it was definitely a a tool in my toolbox, but it wasn't going to be my silver bullet. Exactly. And that's a very good point bringing up endometriosis because with a lot of patients with endometriosis, as we know now, there's overlapping issues Mm -hmm. of all kinds of symptoms. So versus it being nine diagnoses, which it used to be, now we understand that there's a bladder component, a pelvic floor component, a gastrointestinal component. But if every month when the menstrual cycle hits, somebody goes backwards five steps, it has to be a realistic thing of no, this should not take three years. Right. If there's something going on for three years from a physical therapy perspective, musculoskeletal changes can happen in three months. So there's something else that maybe is the underlying driver that has to be medically managed first or simultaneously, but we have to know it's there. Something that I think is so unique about you that I think more physical therapists should be doing is creating communities around themselves with the best of the best, with other practitioners, with urologists, gynecologists. And especially I know you also have within your PHRC practice, functional medicine doctors and understanding the interplay of wellness and infections, mental health, like all of these things play a factor. And when it comes to pelvic pain and how we've called it, you know, integrated amongst all these different elements of the body, I think it's so important to have someone like you who's looking at all the different factors. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's impossible for us to help people without that interconnectedness. And I'm always on the lookout 
I'm lucky within my internal team, as you know, we have 11 locations across the United States, but everybody within our clinical team also has their own area of expertise and interest. I'm obviously involved in vestibulodynia, pugenal neuralgia, but we have Jandra, who's really focused on the endo piece. And, you know, within our team, we have a resource where if one of us have a clinical question PT-wise, we know which person in which office we need to call. And we each have had to have that in our cities as well. And as we're getting started, for example, most recently in Columbus, yes, we're reaching out and starting to make those community members. But I've been in LA since 2014, and I'd say I've got one person in each area that I know that can help with whatever it is I need, whether it's GI, sexual health, urogynecology. But if any one of those people move, and I'm in Los Angeles, you know, I don't think that we still have enough experts, Mm -hmm. but it's hard because we've got the knowledge of what can be done and not everywhere has that. So I'm empathetic to the patients that start to see all this information on social media and they may not be able to access it in their respective cities. So I think that's the uphill fight that even though things are so much better than they were, it can almost just be even more stressful, I think, just seeing what you may or may not have access to in your area. So true. The resources are definitely limited, but we appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. And and creating that kind of holistic approach where you're looking at all of these different areas is, is so important. Your team did a post recently on Instagram on vulvodynia and the do's and don'ts of that condition. I feel like some people listening might not even know what that is. So can you explain it a little bit and also get into some of those do's and don'ts? Sure. So vulvodynia simply means pain in the vulva. Um, It's one of my particular areas of expertise because I actually was allowed to be part of the nomenclature consensus conference in 2015, where 30 different experts in different disciplines were brought together to look at the levels of evidence as to what causes vulvodynia and what are reasonable treatments. And it was a joint meeting between multiple societies where we agreed that we were all going to adopt this nomenclature and help make algorithms to guide the generalists on how to treat vulvodynia. And so again, before 2015, it was kind of told to patients, oh, it's an incurable disease and we don't know why. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, take amitriptyline and maybe see a physical therapist. Which is terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, not okay. Well, it is because even since 2015 to now, we identified nine known causes of it, eight associated factors. And depending on what somebody's reason is for developing that, there are treatment options. And it just isn't fully transmitted down to, again, the general community yet. But when women develop these issues, I mean, it is rare that we can't find a reason why they have it. Mm -hmm. And so there can be different subsets. And I think three of the top would be hormonally induced deficits in premenopausal women. And that, again, can come from birth control pills, acne medication, and hormonal suppressive drugs for endometriosis are the top three. There can be this infectious cycle that maybe happened because of UTI and yeast infections. We've got a sensitivity issue, potentially a mast cell problem. There can be pelvic floor associated things with all of the things that I'm mentioning. But as far as vulvar issues, the top two are probably the infectious situation, the birth control, and then the third can also be neuropathic pain. And that can come from other pain conditions that are going on, which are now being called chronic overlapping pain conditions. These patients appear very different than everyone else. Migraines, TMJ, bloating, endo, vulvodynia. 
Again, instead of thinking these people have seven different things, I think what we're starting to understand is there is this intersection between the nervous system, the somatic system, and there's something different about that group compared to somebody who had maybe three yeast infections and has vulvodynia because of that. And so when we break people's stories down, I think we can make everyone feel a little less terrified about this pain that's horrible and make sense as to why they have it. And then again, who do we need to know to fix the underlying impairments at the root cause? Yeah, Yeah, I I think having the information and to understand your own root cause is like 90% of the battle. There's so much anxiety and stress that comes along when we don't know exactly what's going on and to be like, okay, I know it's yeast and it's done X, Y, and Z to my tissues and here's my plan that alone would decrease my pain levels, you know? Exactly. And for someone to say that with confidence, like, here's Mm -hmm. what we're going to do. Here's a plan. Here's how long I think it's going to take, I think is missing from a lot of people's story. And I know that you're very active, not only on social media, but also with your blog. And on the PHRC website, you have so many patient stories about them overcoming different pelvic pain conditions and also helping new patients or patients seeking care to figure out what the different possibilities are. And it makes it so much less scary. Like I remember one of the first times I interacted with your website, I had been given the diagnosis of pudendal neuralgia, which if anyone Google's pudendal neuralgia, it basically sounds like a death sentence that there is nothing you can do other than have this ultra invasive surgery where you get a nerve removed and it's absolutely freaking terrifying and the worst thing in the entire world. And I remember reading a blog post where you talked about how commonly misdiagnosed it is, how just because a nerve is irritated or like it might be being squeezed by muscles or the viscerosomatic complex, maybe it's inflamed from nearby infections or nearby endometriosis inflammation, how there are ways to fix that. And just like reading that and reading the way that other people were able to overcome it was so helpful to me when I was absolutely panicking at this, you know, life or death diagnosis. And then at the end of the day, like mine totally went away because I had endometriosis on the ligaments that were pulling on the muscles constricting the nerve. Like it's all very clear once you parse through the things, but I, you know, almost went down the rabbit hole of all these different nerve issues. And you were so, so helpful to me in not allowing that to happen. And I feel so responsible for all women out there who, let's be honest, doctors sometimes can be hurting their patients, not not purposefully, but there's a lot of iatrogenic damage that goes on in the treatment options. And having someone like you to to troubleshoot and to say, oh, like my doctor is recommending a nerve block. Do you think I should do this? Or my doctor is recommending freezing the nerve or radiofrequency ablation or these different things. Like you need someone like you in your corner to make those decisions because it's, it's entirely overwhelming. Very overwhelming. And you touched on an important point with the fear of pudendal neuralgia too, because that was also I think it helps to understand the historical context of how I got involved with that diagnosis. At the time, between 2001 and 2006, the office I worked at was the only place in the United States that was interested in really treating that diagnosis in an interdisciplinary setting. We didn't even have surgeons yet in the United States. Patients were going over to France Mm -hmm. in groups of 10 without having a consult ahead of time 
undergoing a major nerve decompression surgery, cutting the sacral tubers to figure spinous ligaments and being told to go on bed red for six months. No. At rest, after cutting major ligaments of the pelvis, then surgeons started appearing in the United States and everything was pudendal nerve entrapment. If there was pain with sitting, that was neuropathic. Now, from a physical therapy perspective, absolutely not. But physical therapists weren't fully involved in what is a very mechanical diagnosis. And so we had to really fight an uphill battle about this because patients were indiscriminately being operated on with that very aggressive procedure and then were totally disabled and they're in their 20s and 30s. It was very difficult because people did not understand neuropathic pain. And thankfully, patient selection and understanding who has entrapment is now better understood because the severity of pudendal neuralgia is serious. But just because the pain is horrendous does not mean that there's an actual entrapment that needs surgery. And this is the difference between then and now. The tests that they were using to try to diagnose entrapment all have been thrown out the window and they're completely invalid. So it is still a clinical diagnosis of exclusion to get to entrapment. And the majority of times I've needed our pudendal nerve surgical colleagues are if this appeared after something like mesh reconstruction for pelvic organ prolapse or traumatic childbirth. The rest of the people generally have something that can be managed. Sam gave a good example. There was an endometriosis reason for a pudendal neuralgia. Like we really have to be inclusive as to what could be happening and not just think it's this like little entrapment between the ligaments just because the pain is severe. We've got to really look at the whole picture with patients because multiple factors could be causing this. But it's been a scary diagnosis for people. And again, with limited resources, we probably have seen more pudendal neuralgia than anyone else in the country. And it doesn't mean that every physical therapist is comfortable treating it either. And so I think that that's another barrier that we're really working hard to get past. On the topic of childbirth, because I feel like a lot of people you see might be in like the prepartum or postpartum part of their lives. Obviously, that's where you hear of pelvic floor a lot. And before I had these chronic infections, that's kind of how I thought of it. What are some of the things that people see you for either before having a baby or after and how can it help? So for physical therapy, I mean, they're really introducing something called the fourth trimester now. I mean, if you think about an ankle sprain compared to either a C-section or a vaginal delivery, the fact that physical therapy wasn't offered to every woman who has been pregnant and then delivered is bonkers to me. Mm-hmm. There are multiple places in the pelvis that there can be issues regardless of the mechanism of delivery. And it is very common for people to have sexual pain or dysfunction, meaning a change in their orgasm or a lack of orgasm for up to 18 months after, like 65% of women, regardless of the mechanism of delivery. We now know that the pubic symphysis can separate, that the levator ani can tear, not just the perineum. And the musculoskeletal changes from growing a human, even without all the things I just mentioned, really can impact how that woman is going to be able to care for her baby and move forward with her life normally. Many people are fine, meaning that they're not symptomatic, but a risk factor for developing pelvic organ prolapse, one of them is just pregnancy in general, not even C-section, but then it increases with vaginal delivery. So the problems may not show up in the asymptomatic people until perimenopause or menopause, when what if they could have been prevented in the first place? 
I think there's also the challenge of trying to raise a child and go to physical therapy. That's not easy. I mean, people feel overwhelmed. It's just a confluence of challenging, I think, social and medical situation in this period. But like everything else, it's starting to get better. Are there things people can do in prepping for pregnancy to sort of lessen the burden on their pelvic floor? So there is prepartum physical therapy with random amounts of evidence as to if it can actually help reduce some of the tearing or not. And again, not to act against my own profession, but I'm not (laughs) sure that the data is really there for things like perineal massage, particularly when I'm aware of devices that are being introduced in a medical setting that actually stretch the pelvic floor after an epidural is in to eight centimeters, that's reducing tearing. It's not commercially available yet, but it will be coming. So physical therapy beforehand, if we can help neutralize fear and help people improve any faulty mechanics, that's where I see physical therapists being helpful. So a woman may come for a prepartum eval. If she can control her pelvic floor, do everything that we're asking her to do, and she's comfortable, we may not need to see her right now. If somebody comes into pelvic floor PT before birth, they've got sciatica, they're starting to get pudendal symptoms, they're leaking, they can't have a bowel movement, then there's opportunity if there's impairments for us to help. So instead of it just being a blanket thing, we kind of have to look at what the individual is coming in with. And they were told previously, oh, well, it's just because you're pregnant and to suffer through it. But if somebody does have sciatic symptoms, they're leaking that's not setting them up for success, regardless of their method of delivery. And so we really don't want to just attribute it to the pregnancy. In the same vein as it's normal, you're pregnant. I want to talk a little bit about pain with sex. I feel like that's something that a lot of young women experience, but they might not know how to admit it to themselves or their partner or how to even go about finding resources or help. And a lot of the time, even if you do say something to your doctor, they're like, oh, you're stressed, drink a glass of wine, relax. I mean, how many times have we all heard that? But pain with sex is a real thing. And I would love to have you talk a little bit about vaginismus and some of the issues that might arise with uh, penetrative sex. And it is very common, even though it's not normal. Sex should never hurt. And one in three premenopausal women now are the statistics may have some sort of insertional or deeper pain. There are diagnoses that you just mentioned like vaginismus, which is more of an involuntary muscle tightening. Let's say there's no vulvar issues at all. Vulva's fine, but yet there is a blockage and that can be something that was primary, meaning someone was born with it, or it can be acquired, which it may have developed over time. So pelvic floor physical therapy can help with something like vaginismus, but some of the other penetrative disorders, we have to divide into superficial and deep. So sometimes it's an insertional issue or sometimes it's a deeper pain. And there are medical diagnoses that overlap with both the vestibulodynias, lichen sclerosis, vulvar disease, deeper issues such as endometriosis can cause some of the deeper insertional pain. But these things are never normal. And again, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's a few different categories. People are either diagnosing themselves online, they may have a range with the generalist, or they may be lucky enough to get to an expert that can help them figure it out. But there's always an answer. And I just think we have to help people get to the right one for them. 
Right. And I think it's an important takeaway that sex should never hurt. So if it is, it's something you should definitely look into. It it shouldn't be normalized. There isn't this like suffer through it attitude that so many of these conditions are unfortunately getting. We talked about penetration just now, but we also want to acknowledge, obviously, there's a lot of conversation right now and thank God about like the orgasm gap. And if our knowledge of women's sexual orgasm and sexual normal response is still not even up to speed in 2023. Of course, these pain issues really have not been investigated enough either. But now that we're looking at the orgasm gap and people are paying more attention to the clitoris, I don't think it's an accident that all of a sudden we're seeing a rise of clitoral pain. And there are a few different things that can be involved in clitoral pain that women may not know are even there until we start having conversations such as this. The clitoral hood should fully retract when we are aroused. Because some of the hormone deficiencies can change the size of the clitoris, the clitoral hood actually can get adhered to the clitoris itself, almost creating a balanitis type of thing as like men with foreskin, the same thing can happen to the penis. There can be the development of small little things called keratin pearls. Discharge can get stuck under the clitoral hood. And there can be inflammation or inflammation and infection. And these things can start to sensitize everything in the pelvis because the pudendal nerve goes there and it's a highly innervated structure. We are not taught to fully retract our clitoral hoods in the shower and make sure everything underneath is getting removed. Our patients are not dirty, but I know I didn't even start thinking about telling people this until a paper came out on it just this year in March. Now, all of a sudden, now that we're checking with all people across ages, if they're not regularly having clitoral contact, they may not know this is even there until someone tries to touch them. Maybe they were not in a sexual relationship and now they are. All of a sudden, things don't feel as good as they should. That's also never normal. And so I think we really need to educate women about not just douching, which was, you know, 10 years ago, everyone started to figure out not to do that. But really retracting our anatomy, looking at our anatomy, you should be able to tolerate vibration and sexual touch without pain. Sometimes people just think they're too sensitive, but they may be too sensitive for a reason. And again, it may be a precursor before it becomes a full-blown scenario. If someone is having, just so that I understand correctly, if they're having trouble reaching orgasm, could that be a pelvic floor dysfunction and something you can help with? It can be. If the muscles are either too tight or too weak to repetitively contract for an orgasm, then it can be a pelvic floor problem. But for so many women who are dependent upon the clitoris for orgasm, I think we're going to see a rise and that it's underreported that people actually have issues underneath their clitoral hood. They just may not have ever realized it until they're trying to have sex or trying to achieve their orgasm now that people are talking more about vibrators and masturbation. And all of a sudden, it hurts. They didn't know that that was even there because they don't have unprovoked pain unless they're trying to orgasm. Some of the most impactful work that I did in physical therapy involved things that I was doing outside of the actual PT room and, you know, like tips on breathing and relaxing my pelvic floor or the way that I'm sitting in a chair, which I'm crossing my legs right now. And I was told not to do that, you know, just like little things, breathing correctly in Pilates so that I'm not overly tightening Are there any tips that you have for people at home or just day-to-day things that they can do if they're having pelvic pain to sort of alleviate it? 
actually, before you answer that question, I just wanted to elaborate on something that Elizabeth said. I was actually told once in PT that the reason that I had developed a predisposition to having hypertonic pelvic floor, so like a tight pelvic floor, was because as a ballerina, they teach you sort of to Kegel all the time. It's mm-hmm. like suck up, you know, squeeze your butt muscles, suck in your belly, and sort of think about it like holding in your pee and poop at the same time, which I then learned is exactly what you should not do for pelvic floor health. So as I was exercising my whole life, doing Pilates later in life, like engaging my core to me was like that ballerina, like suck it all in. And I definitely learned a lot in PT about how to get around that and how to learn to re-engage my muscles in a, in a healthy way and to use my core efficiently. So I, I would love to hear, you know, the answer to Elizabeth's question and also a little bit on how people can, you know, think about engaging their pelvic floor without Kegeling, because I think that there's a massive misconception that Kegels are good. Right. That's a great point. So The pelvic floor is not something we should have to think about, just as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. It is under both voluntary and autonomic function, which means, for example, if we decide to do a Kegel, we can. Just like if you decide to hold your breath or breathe, you can. But in other instances, for example, as urine is filling the bladder or stool is entering the rectum, our pelvic floor is going to involuntarily contract to keep us continent. It's a very, very basic breakdown of the physiology. There's actually like 18 reflexes involved in each and it's very complicated. But some people, the propensity, and we can't tell who's who just by walking around, you know, the reflexes may not be working as well as they can, or there's behavioral things like Sam just mentioned that you're trained to even override some of the autonomic functions. And then that can result in discomfort and disability. And then other people are completely fine and may not have the same problem. So the individual assessment, I think, is really what's important because sometimes we have to teach our patients how to help them retrain their muscles. Sometimes upon exam, people can't squeeze because everything's already too tight. Sometimes people can't squeeze because there's just no strength left. Um, Sometimes they can't push. Sometimes they can't relax. And a lot of times people have no idea what the pelvic floor muscles are doing. Why should they? They haven't had to think about it. They just know they're symptomatic. It's always part of a physical therapy treatment plan to get the pelvic floor working normally with the core. And so that means that when we increase our intra-abdominal pressure, our pelvic floor contracts with it. And then whenever that particular exercise or moment is over, pelvic floor goes back down to what's considered normal EMG levels. In order to be able to urinate, we need to be able to relax our muscles. Some people can't do that. In order to be able to fully urinate, we have to keep our muscles relaxed for the length of time it takes the bladder to expel the urine. Some people can't do that. And so that's our job to help figure it out. It's going to be different from person to person what they need. But in general, pelvic girdle muscles also have a significant impact on our pelvic floor. And I really support the use of foam rollers and theraguns for general musculoskeletal health because they're not really going to compromise a nerve that maybe doesn't want to get stretched. It's mostly tolerated by the majority of our patients. And the best we can keep everything functioning from our breath down to our legs and feet, the better the pelvic floor is going to be, which is just stuck there in the middle of all of it. 
Stretching is so incredibly underrated and you you can always feel the areas that need a little bit of extra love. So I would definitely encourage that. Stephanie, where can people find you, your Instagram, website? I know you have a very active blog too. So let's make sure that they're able to access that. Yeah, so our company is the Pelvic Health and Rehabilitation Center. We do virtual visits as well as in person in the 11 cities where we are. Our Instagram is at Pelvic Health. That's also my Twitter. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook, all the regular platforms. The blog comes out every Thursday. If you're interested in that, you can sign up on our website, which also has a lot of, again, trusted evidence-based information about these different pain syndromes and the whole umbrella of pelvic floor disorders. Amazing. Wow. We we can't thank you enough. That was so informative. I hope that everyone listening today learned something new, something that might help them. And from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for all the work that you do and all the love that you treat all your patients with. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. We hope you leave today's episode having learned something new and feeling empowered. If you're loving Femme Pharmacy, you can support our mission to bring you the latest and greatest in women's health by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with a friend. For more on these topics, follow us on Instagram at Femme Pharmacy or check out our website, fempharmacy.com. everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.